Welcome to the Doctors Hospital podcast. I am your host, Alexis Burrows, brand manager at Doctors Hospital. Today, we have as a guest on the podcast, Dr. Stephanie Hutchison. She is a clinical psychologist, an assistant professor of psychology at the University of the Bahamas, and an associate medical staff here at Doctors Hospital in our specialist clinic. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hutchison. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before we get started, here are a few words on the new normal at Doctors Hospital. We at Doctors Hospital have been hard at work preparing for the new normal. From COVID screening as you enter the facility, to mandatory hand and shoe washing stations. To further limit contact, we have launched a concierge service that allows for pre-registration and in-car waiting. Scheduling for imaging, laboratory, rehabilitation and other services has also been adjusted. And our pharmacy is now offering curbside pickup and delivery. We're here to serve you with the same quality and care that you've come to expect. Doctors Hospital. Trusted and best care now. Isn't your health worth it? So we've um, been tackling this concept of pain management for a couple of weeks now on the podcast. Um, we've had Dr. Jazreel Thompson talking about it from a an anesthesia um, and opioid management kind of perspective. We had Dr. Shanaz um, Sheikh last week who was talking about it from a physiotherapy standpoint. And then we also had Dr. Sashil Wadwa, who was talking about it from a surgical kind of approach. So we've been, like I said, kind of talking around and about all of these different components of pain and chronic pain management. Um, so today we, we wanted to talk to you because uh, one of the things that's come, that's come up with a lot of those conversations is the psychological component to pain, particularly when you're talking about somebody who may be suffering from chronic pain. Um, so... To get started, you know, I guess I wanted to kind of find out what is the psychological component of pain? I'm glad that you included this aspect of it because I think it's an aspect that's often kind of either minimized or not recognized as a, as a critical component in terms of the experience of pain. Mm -hmm. And so you probably talked a little bit about how pain is one of the most common reasons that individuals present to primary care. Mm -hmm. I think some of the research speaks to almost 80% of all visits to physicians are related to pain. And so behavioral management or psychological strategies are critical in terms of non-pharmacological tools. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about the psychological component of pain, this is a kind of a newer um, outlook in terms of being more integrated in looking at how to manage pain. Mm -hmm. And so there are two more new, newer theories that look up that kind of consider the psychological component of pain, and that's the gate control theory and the biopsychosocial one, which I'll probably focus more on, because these aspects recognize that pain is not just physiologically driven 
but also the meaning attached to the pain experience and how it influenced the other aspects of a person's life. Mm -hmm. And so the expanded emphasis on not just treating the pain through pharmaceuticals, but by incorporating psychologists as key players in treatment, it allows us to extend the ways that pain can be managed and controlled through the use of the, the physical activity, addressing emotional distress, uncovering thoughts and beliefs about pain that are counterproductive, and just employing behavioral methods like management and relaxation mm -hmm. to help the individual cope and live with pain. Because sometimes you can't necessarily cure it. The person has to learn how to live with it. So the psychological component of it addresses all of those aspects in terms of how does the person think about their pain experiences what environmental influences might be exacerbating the pain? Mm. What level of support do they have? How are they emotionally responding to having pain? So Understood. that's the psychological component. And all integrated into a complete package. Right. So what are some of the ways that um, chronic pain can cause, I guess, or present from a psychological, a psychological standpoint? Okay, one of the things, and I'm probably going to repeat myself with this because it's an, an important aspect to mention, is that the experience of pain is both physio physio physiology and mm -hmm. psychologically tethered, so they're combined. Mm -hmm. And so what you might see in terms of presentation, in terms of chronic pain, would relate to the patient's emotional distress. What mm -hmm. are they saying? How are they reporting? Are they feeling? Um, they may actually end up feeling depressed or end up with clinical depression. Mm -hmm. There may be a level of anxiety that they're living with or as a response to the pain. If they have a pre-existing mental disorder, it may be exacerbated because of the pain experience. Fluctuations in mood, they may not, not adhere to the medication regimen. So that's not an exhaustive list, but in some ways that you can see presentation psychologically. Okay. So you mentioned um, anxiety and, and distress um, as some of the, the ways that it may present. Um, how important is it that somebody who is suffering with chronic pain manage their, their stress levels um, when they're going through this process of trying to find treatment or, you know, trying to find normalcy in dealing with it? Stress levels um, and managing them are important fact of anyone's life. Mm -hmm. You know, there's stress management, whether you whether or not you're in pain or chronic pain. And so, with the behavioral management of pain, psychologists first of all find it useful to distinguish between acute pain, recurrent pain, and chronic pain. And mm -hmm. I know we've been talking more about chronic pain. So, acute pain is usually connected to an illness or an injury. And it generally resolves with healing. Mm -hmm. Recurrent pain is more episodic. So they may have bouts and then periods where there's no pain that they're living with. But it's the chronic pain, like with migraine pains. Chronic pain is considered um, lasting more than six months and it's persistent. And so whether it's acute, recurrent, or chronic, managing the stress is going to be important for all those types because as the stress levels increase on our moving into the more unmanageable realm, you have an exacerbation again of how they're coping. Um, they might be able to readily access the tools that they used to cope before mm -hmm. um, because they can't kind of think about what the strategies are because they're just, the stress level kind of almost um, wipes out the way we're responding um, in more productively. So 
managing your stress levels, whether it's in general, but particularly if chronic pain is a part of your experience, it's very key because it's a part of the behavioral management strategies to help you cope better and mm-hmm. live with chronic pain or live with pain. Right. Now, one of the things you mentioned that just kind of leads me to uh, a, a question. Um, <clears throat> what are some of the, the, you know, I guess coping mechanisms that people may normally have that they should steer away from that can be negative when you're talking about dealing with pain management? One of the things um, that we pay attention to, because the I think a little later on, or maybe we'll get to that later, but the kind of go-to standard in terms of treating pain, pain disorders, is cognitive behavioral. Mm-hmm. And so the cognitive refers to how the person's thinking. So you want to have the person recognize and identify where is my thinking going? Is it more on a, is it a, in a more negative slant? Mm-hmm. Is it catastrophic? Is it all or nothing? I won't recover. I can't get past this because that's going to um, negatively impact how they deal with stress. So you want them to stay away from that. Mm-hmm. You want them to adopt more behaviors that are helpful. Sometimes when we're in pain, we tend to immobilize because we don't want to make it any worse. But one of the strategies, behavioral, that's recommended is for people to actually engage in physical activity at a pace that's measured for their own experience so that they're actually active instead of sedentary or immobile. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So those are, those are two. One, that's one behavioral and one cognitive in terms of how people can kind of stare away from adopting behaviors that don't necessarily help them, mm-hmm. even though it might seem in the short term or long term that helpful. Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier that depression can be an issue that stems from somebody dealing with chronic pain. So what are some of the signs that a patient or, or perhaps more importantly, a family member or a loved one um, of a patient who's dealing with chronic pain, what are some of the signs that they should look out for that may tell them that, hey, you know, this person is leaning towards being in a, in a depressive state? Okay, so when we talk about depression, sometimes major depressive disorder or clinical depression, it's a common mood disorder. And when someone is depressed from a psychological perspective, because I know we use the term a lot, you know, equally mm-hmm. in our general conversations, but when we talk about depression, we're talking about someone who has persistent almost constant feelings of sadness and hopelessness. There's a lack of interest in their activities, Mm -hmm. particularly the activities they once enjoyed. Um, They may have issues related to sleeping too much, sleeping too little, Um, just a general lack of motivation, Um, just a a number of, of symptoms. But two of them that are really critical in terms of is this person depressed or this person may be depressed Mm -hmm. is that the person must have um, sadness for at least two weeks. So Mm. there's a our kind of like diagnostic category where we kind of a constellation of symptoms we look at to see is this person meeting... um, criteria for depression, we're going to look for at least a two-week duration of symptoms. One of them is a depressed mood, and one of, and the other is a loss of interest and pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so the other symptoms that we might be looking at 
or a loved one might be looking at is, is this the person depressed in a depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day? Right. Have they lost interest just about all or most of the activities that they usually enjoyed mostly nearly every day? Is there been a weight loss or a significant weight gain? Um, is there um, kind of like they seem lethargic and slowed down? Are they complaining about fatigue? Do they look that way? Are they talking about feeling worthless, difficulty concentrating, or even having thoughts about suicide? So those are the constellation of symptoms that we're looking at for someone who's depressed. And so if someone is experiencing chronic pain, you might see them being, you know, lethargic or they don't seem interested in stuff. And some of that may be related to the physical mm-hmm. manifestation of their pain. So you can see that the nuances are really key in terms of is this depression or is this an aspect of the pain experience and so talking to the person trying to tease that out is going to be important but ultimately having them assessed by a health professional mental health professional who is experienced in understanding the the presentation of of depression will be very critical Mm -hmm. right because i i understand i i guess i imagine that it might be um that it would be critical to kind of know if you're overreacting as a loved one right. or if you're right. underreacting. And so it's important to know um, to, to know the signs and kind of have an idea. Um, and like you say, as, as far as possible on your own to kind of tease it out and then if need right. be, go into the space of, of having um, a, a mental health professional assistant kind of coming to that diagnosis point. Right, okay. right. But also, like I said, just having the conversation so that you're checking in with the individual so you can, it'll be easier to kind of, is this a different, this is, this is different than what I've been seeing. So if you have that kind of constant communication, it'll be easier to recognize when something is just a bit off. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think the consistency part of it is probably really critical too, because it's one thing if you're checking in once a week, because you're not, you may not be getting sufficient information to kind of make that determination as to whether or not this looks like depression or not. But that idea of kind of checking in on a more consistent basis would give you sufficient information to kind of say, you know, does this look like depression or not? Um, so that, that's really good to kind of to know and understand. Now, what advice then would you give um, someone who may be dealing with a family member or a loved one who appears to be going through um, a, a clinical or um, a, a depressive disorder? Um, as I mentioned a bit earlier, talking with them, we talked about that communication being really key mm-hmm. so that you can be able to be more in tune with changes that are probably related to a mental distress as opposed to just um, the presentation of the pain. And so, and even in the talking, you know, there's sensitivity that's, that's necessary for mm-hmm. family members because I think family members, particularly if you're the person who is, you know, in charge of care or you're living with a person, it can be very easy to kind of brush them off or think, you know, it's all in their head or mm-hmm. they're just not trying hard enough or they're exaggerating their complaints because they're looking for attention. So I think many of us may go there very easily because it can get very overwhelming dealing with someone who may be having a very kind of negative in terms of coping with pain. And so listening, really listening mm-hmm. 
to them because that's important. That's a level of support because I think sometimes people feel so helpless that they can't fix it. They would rather kind of flee it. So just mm-hmm. being that presence and the listening air is very helpful in terms of helping the person have a place to be supported and be heard and to also pay attention, be mindful of the things that they can do and encourage them and allow them so they have that degree of autonomy and independence so that you're not doing every single thing for them. Mm-hmm. You want Because that sets up a very negative um, precedent in terms of the person as we're trying to help them to move to more autonomous, independent living. If you set it up so that they're very dependent on you, then that's kind of a harder cycle to break out of. Mm-hmm. So you want to encourage autonomy and independence and doing for themselves as much as they can supporting them, hearing them, but also, and this is important as well, if they need psychological help and extra psychological support to recommend that and be willing to go with them. Because sometimes people need someone else to go along. And then also for the family member to recognize that they need a break too. Right. They need some respite care too, and it's okay for them to take care of their own mental and physical health. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's um that one I imagine can be particularly difficult to navigate. Um right. Because I, I imagine it does require a certain level of, of sensitivity to mm-hmm. you know, managing because essentially, you know, especially if it's a if it's a family member or a loved one, you know, it's it's very delicate to manage um trying to look out for them but not necessarily going so far as to then have them become dependent, like you you're mentioning in terms of yes. you know, trying yes. to maintain that autonomy. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's a it's a delicate balance because you don't want them to be totally dependent on you because it's more of a burden on you, and so you have to kind of see how, like I said, it's not an easy thing to do, but just mm-hmm. to balance between their needs and supporting them, but also your own, because right. if you're stressed out as a caregiver or helper then you're going to be less likely to be tolerant and supportive of the person you're helping. Right. And then that doesn't, that, that leads to, or that can lead to more damaging results as a, as a, as an outcome, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Before we continue, here are a few words on Doctors Hospital's new Loyalty Advantage membership program. Doctors Hospital is proud to introduce the Loyalty Advantage membership program or LAMP. LAMP offers medical service discounts to new and existing doctor's hospital patients. With membership starting as low as $20 per month, LAMP benefits include fee waivers for insured patients, discounts on inpatient and outpatient services, access to free imaging services, and much more. For a full list of benefits or to sign up for LAMP, visit doctorshospital.com slash LAMP. Doctors Hospital, trusted and best care now. Isn't your health worth it? Um, so what are some of the treatment options for the psychological component of, of pain or the psychological manifestations, um, when someone is dealing with chronic pain or pain in general? Okay. So the go-to standard is, or is the behavioral or the cognitive behavioral interventions. Mm -hmm. And there's been a substantial body of research that support that these interventions are effective in addressing what the person is thinking mm-hmm. and what are they doing to maintain or have a more negative response in terms of coping with pain. Mm-hmm. And so so the, the behavioral and cognitive behavioral interventions, they tend to go hand in hand. 
And so one of the first things a mental health professional, whether a psychologist or a counselor or someone who's working in this area, they're going to begin with a functional assessment. How is this person living? Um, so that begins with an interview to assess um, what causes the pain to increase and decrease. So these are just some of them. I'm not going to cover all of them, but just to give you some insight in terms of what the assessment will be looking at. How frequent is the pain? What is the duration of the pain? How is the pain impacting daily activities? How does the person respond emotionally? What strategies are they currently using to cope? What kinds of thoughts and behaviors have they adopted and adapted to function? Mm -hmm. And you may have um, the professional might use something as simple as rating scales. Tell me on a scale of one to ten. How is your pain on a daily basis? So you're beginning to get a baseline right. of how the person is functioning so that you could be more effective in how you target the treatment to monitor the effectiveness of the treatment and how you might need to tweak it to be a little more intense or kind of dial it down. Right. Um, another area you want to look at is what we call psychoeducation. You just want to talk to the patient about what is pain. And what is it and how pain works and understanding the biology and the psychology of how thoughts, emotions, behaviors, your environment, your support, um, how they all combine to help you understand what's going on with you, but also serve as a platform for how interventions or strategies to manage the pain can be drawn from. And so just education about like, people educate about cancer or about diabetes, you would have the same kind of education about pain. You might have the patient kind of keep a diary mm -hmm. um, between sessions to kind of monitor their pain levels or what they were doing or what has helped and what hasn't helped. And then also rec recognizing that a, an important component of the treatment is having them adhere to the um, pharmaceutical management because it's also a part toolkit for managing pain. Mm -hmm. So you want to you know, encourage the use of medication as prescribed, educate the individual about pain, the physiology of pain, the psychosocial factors that inhibit or help you manage and control your pain, how to identify and deal with your thoughts, emotions, and behaviors to minimize the impact of pain. Mm -hmm. And then um, also just get in a sense of practically what is the pain experience because that informs the interventions you're going to adopt. Mm -hmm. Okay, sounds good. Now, you, I, I think you've mentioned this or you touched on this point a little bit earlier, but I kind of want to just, I guess, dig into it a little bit deeper. Um, but how important is it to maintain social activity and your nor or as close to possible your normal routine um as a part of treating pain absolutely essential okay. is that question that question is absolutely essential think about your own experience when you have pain we tend to kind of want to withdraw um rest which is good um as a particularly in terms of the acute reaction or response to pain but you don't want someone to be in bed all day, every day, to be immobile, to not be doing anything, to just kind of withdrawing from life. Because what that tends to do is to cause them to focus more on pain, mm -hmm. which makes it even more problematic 
there's a lot of research that looks at the kind of over focus on the pain seems to um, ramp up the experience of pain. And so you want the person to be as active as they can be. Right. So you can't look at patient A and say, well, that person's able to do that. You should be able to do that too. You have to do an individual assessment to see what is this person capable of and to try to move them at a measured, um, safe pace so that they're physically active in a way that um, matches where their level of function is. And so it's very critical. You don't want them to be mobile and not doing anything because that makes it worse. Right. Because like you said, your your focus then becomes almost completely on the pain part of it and that, that only exactly. exacerbates the situation. Uh, understood. Yeah. Think, 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 think about um, the... I think we've, we've heard reports about athletes who have injured themselves on the court mm -hmm. and they were just taped up and went back into the game and they didn't even register the pain because they were distracted by the activity. Right. But as soon as they kind of relaxed and weren't active anymore, then it seems like the floodgates literally of the pain and they were able like, wow, you were able to pay on a broken foot? Right. Yeah, because you were distracted by something else. So th what that tells us is that Distracting activities, physical activities, can in a way minimize our experience of pain. Right. I mean, there's there's a ton of stories I think from from the athletic arena that kind of speak to that because mm -hmm. I think there's a Tiger mm -hmm. Woods story. I think he he finished off a tournament on a torn Achilles, um, or a broken foot or something like that. There was Kobe famously who had went back into the game to shoot free throws after tearing his Achilles. So definitely there's there's evidence there that kind of backs that up, particularly from obviously as a guy who's into sports, that kind of resonates with me. Um but yes. yeah, there's there's definitely um practical evidence of of that um in everyday life. Now, I think you spoke to this a little bit earlier and I I guess wanted to kind of have you expand on it a bit more. But is um, psychological treatment a common component of a pain management plan? Primary care at psychology and behavioral health, sometimes they're used interchangeably, mm -hmm. but sometimes they're considered um, relatively new sub-disciplines in pain management. Mm -hmm. So now you can find as a psychology intern or a psychologist internships, fellowships, training, in primary care settings where your role is an integral part of the treatment team mm -hmm. in terms of managing pain or other primary care um, conditions. And so rather than it being an adjunct to treatment, it's now considered a more integral part of the treatment program so that there's a more, I guess, holistic approach. Mm -hmm. But I do believe... So, so there's there's a much greater awareness of the psychology of it and how that should be integrated into care. Mm -hmm. But I think um, for our own local context, there's definitely much more education mm -hmm. and integration necessary because, as I was saying, it makes for more comprehensive and holistic patient care. And it's also a more forward movement in helping to diminish the stigma attached to psychological services. Right. So it's, it's, it's not where it could be locally mm -hmm. but there's definitely a significant uptick and awareness mm -hmm. of let's integrate psychology in terms of primary care health right and i and i imagine um this wasn't in our our list to the to kind of go over in discussion but that is something i wanted to touch on a little bit is um this stigma because i imagine now in 
you know, we, we've been in the throes of this pandemic for a while um, and in and out of lockdowns and seemingly stirring down the barrel of potentially another lockdown, well, definitely in Grand Bahama, but potentially in the other islands as well. Um, and I imagine there are a lot of people who have been affected psychologically by, you know, all of this isolation and things like that. So there's two things I want to kind of discuss coming out of that statement. One is mm -hmm. what kind of going back to the question about staying socially active um what options are available what would you recommend in this current environment for somebody to stay socially active and then two mm -hmm. what what can we do to help um to continue to break that stigma around um the idea of needing uh psychological help or or just the importance of mental health and the to, to just break the stigma around it so let me take the second question first. This is my mantra. Mm -hmm. I've adopted, uh, particularly during this COVID experience, that if we could recognize that mental health is health, mm -hmm. we would be in a much better place. But it's always, it seems to be relegated to adjunct. Like there's health and there's mental health. Mm. But mental health is health. Right. And if you aren't functioning well, in terms of your mental and psychological facilities and response, it's going to impact everything else. Right. And I don't think people, we tend to separate them too often. And so that in itself, I think, contributes to the stigma because, you know, it's health, but then there's mental health. Right. You know, that's a little more character floor, you know, you're weak. Mm -hmm. So I think if we have a greater recognition that mental health is health, then the resources that we um, allocate for health would also be inclusive of mental health care as well, mm -hmm. would be, which also relates to integrating mental health care in primary care. It's all a part of the same package. Right. And then when you mentioned about so being socially active, like I said, once again, it kind of feeds into that whole mental health is health. And so there's a recognition that when we have these limitations and restrictions and these lockdowns to be mindful that people's mental health a part of health, um, we should also focus on. So I, I get why the beaches and the parks are closed, but those are very good ways that people can kind of find a healthy outlook in mm -hmm. terms of mental well-being. Right. To be able to go to the beach, to be able to swim, to be able to walk in the parks. Mm -hmm. I know the, the kind of short term responses will do it in your yard or do it in your neighborhood so that you're physically active and so i'm glad that we have that available but when you think of the wonderful pleasant environment of the beach of swimming and walking mm -hmm. in such a pleasing environment it goes a long way to enhancing well-being personally i don't even have to go in the water i just need to see it right and it just brings a level of stress relief and calm and peace to me. So I think all of those things need to be considered mm -hmm. when we make these recommendations because I said it before and I'm going to say it again, mental health is health. health. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I can speak to that because I know, and this is a conversation, you know, we're, we're, we're preparing to do a series of podcasts on um, back to school in August. And mm -hmm. one of the components that we want to talk about is um, mental health for kids. So I, I, right. I would say this, I know even like I have a two year old at home and obviously with daycares and stuff having been closed, 
Um, even sometimes she will just come to the door when you get home and be like, you know, I want to go outside because she's been home so much for so long and there's right, not a lot of right. opportunity for activity. So even sometimes with her, like we'll just go and take a drive along, you know, the coast so you can see the beach, she can see, get the fresh air, that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I can see the impact it has on her. So I imagine there's right. a, there's a lot of, um, there's a, a, a great bit of conversation that can be had about mental health and COVID and just everything that's going on right now, especially kind of targeting, you know, how that's been impacting the youth of our country, you know, even as we prepare to see what school looks like, you know, in September, October moving forward. So I think there's a there's a there's a healthy conversation to be had there. Um, and we look forward to having that conversation in a in a separate time and space. Can I just jump in here? I've been talking about this, me and my colleague, um, Dr. Hall Campbell-Dean, for a couple of weeks now. Mm-hmm. We did a study um, at the university looking at how COVID, COVID has impacted mental health. Mm-hmm. So we did that in May, and our preliminary results show that the 18 to 24-year-old group is a group that has been reporting the highest level of stress related to COVID restrictions. Mm. The next highest group, which we haven't had time to talk about as much, are females. That's Mm. been the next highest group. And then healthcare workers. Mm. Those are the three groups that have been reporting the greatest level of stress as um, compared, um, not compared, as a result of the limitations and restrictions of COVID. And so what would be interesting is we could kind of delve a little deeper into the specifics because the research didn't ask that in terms of what is it in these three groups that is um, heightening their level of stress. We can speculate, mm-hmm. but in terms of having the specifics, that's probably the next, um, the next, I guess, phase of the research that we'll look at. What are the specifics? What's going on mm-hmm. that this group, the 18 to 24-year-olds, who have traditionally over the last few months have had the lowest um, likelihood of contracting disease have the highest stress levels. Mm. But of course, we see things are changing every day in terms of COVID's presentation. Right. So. Right. So that, that like I said, there's, there's a wealth of conversation to be had there because we're also going to be looking at Absolutely. having some discussion around mental health and COVID in particular where, you know, there's, there's a lot. There's a, there's a, I think there's a mountain of discussion to be had. Um, and I'm like hoping... my thing is, this is another one. I'm jumping in here. I mean, we're all good about what healthcare workers need, but my thing is, healthcare workers, PPEs are good, but healthcare workers need more than PPEs. Right. They need mental health support as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a yeah, that's a, a lot to to unpack, and hopefully we'll get an <laughs> yes. opportunity to um, to have some more conversation in in a separate time and space to kind of go through both the the. Um, the, the mental health and kids as we look at doing the back to school stuff, but also um, mental health and COVID and the impact of that, um, particularly in our environment, in, in our local yeah. um, national space. Um, right. This has been a really good conversation. I have one more thing I want to ask you before we, um, sure. we let you go. Um, okay. So it's a two part question. One, how can our listeners um, engage the services of a psycho, a psychologist or a mental health professional um, as a part of their pain management plan, um, and then do they require a referral to to make that appointment? Okay, I can speak um, as my from my platform as associate medical staff mm-hmm. at in the specialist clinic at Doctors Hospital. The people that I see, whether it doesn't matter which they're being referred for, it's usually by referral. Mm-hmm. 
So usually the physicians, particularly those who know about me, because I was gone for a long time, just come back the last this last year, and so they would refer. They'd either call me or I would get an appointment saying, um, heads up, I'm sending someone to you. This is the potential issue. Mm-hmm. And so it's usually by referral um, through um, physicians and doctors' hospital or who are in the community who right. are familiar with me and who would refer individuals to me. But people can also call on their own to make a referral, to make an appointment, mm-hmm. um, particularly as because of what we've talked about, if it's kind of, cause red flags or sensitize them more, they can just call and make an appointment at specialist clinic and we can take it from there. Okay. Or if they know of someone else in the community, because we have, we have a number of um, health, mental health professionals, um, just try to get a hold of one of them or a referral to one of them and, and to begin to, act, to access this part of their treatment program. Right. Understood. Um, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Um, I thank you for taking the time out to, to, to talk with us. I know you've been um, particularly busy. Um, so I, I'm yeah, happy that we were the able... The last week has been very yeah. yeah. So I'm glad that we were able to lock you down for a few minutes and kind of talk through um, a lot of this information. I think this is going to be very enlightening for our listeners. Um, this is also, I think, a great way to conclude our series on pain yeah. management. Um, I think we've about covered the full spectrum of, right. you know, the opportunities and the challenges that that present when it comes to pain and particularly chronic pain, because that's been, uh, you know, a big part of the focus. Um, but yeah. this was this is excellent. I thank you so much for um, taking the time out to, to come on the podcast and talk with us today. Thank you for the opportunity to sensitize, to make people aware of a very important issue. Appreciate mm-hmm. the opportunity. And I hope you get a chance to talk some more. I think there's a there's a lot of discussion sure, to be had. I'm sure we will. All right. I'm sure we will. Thank you very much. You enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Doctors Hospital podcast. We'd like to send a very special thank you to Dr. Stephanie Hutchison for taking the time out to talk with us today. Uh, we had a very interesting conversation around the psychological component of pain and pain management. And I hope uh, you, our listeners, have enjoyed this conversation. Uh, As always, we invite you to like, comment, subscribe, and share the podcast. And we will see you back here next week on the Doctor's Hospital Podcast.